I'm Lisa Bontesumi, and this is the Ath Mindset podcast series on sports epreneur. This podcast series is a space for conversations with athletes, coaches, practitioners, and stakeholders in sports. And it's where those individuals share their perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on mental health in sports. Eric Kazimoff of Sports Epreneur is generously hosting the Ath Mindset podcast series on his platform as he deeply believes that these conversations are essential and deserve to be prioritized. This is the Ath Mindset podcast series on Sports Epreneur. Sports Epreneur, the content platform where sports, entrepreneurship, and mental health collide. If you are looking to start a podcast or create original content, you have to talk with the team at Sports Epreneur. I work with them and I vouch for them. It's that simple. Go to sportse.io to learn more. So Marion, I'm just so glad to be able to talk to you. You have a very interesting story and order of things. And the fact that you're not from the U.S. just lends a different experience to your upbringing around the sport. So I'd love to hear how you found synchronized swimming. How was that your sport or did it find you? Like, tell us about that. Actually, I watched synchronized swimming on TV, believe it or not. So it's a maybe a a more high-profile sport for young girls in France. Mm. And so I saw a competition on TV and uh, I told my mom, this is what I want to do. So I was watching the uh, European Championship at the time. We had a a really good French synchronized swimmer and I was inspired by uh, her performance and wanted to uh, get into the sport. Wow. Yeah, because I don't think I ever seen it. I was raised in the U.S., ever seen it since like maybe Olympics just for a little bit. And there's not like a lot of coverage on it when they show it. So I really, really appreciated that. Being able to see it, but you being able to see it as a young girl and be inspired is super cool. What was it about the sport? Was it the grace, the strength, all of the above? You know what? I'm not quite sure. Definitely the love of the water. I was definitely a water baby. I love being in the water. I would spend all my summer in my dad's cousin's pool for hours at a time. So I think that was the first attraction. Then it was graceful and athletic, I guess. That was the second attraction. But it's hard to recall, to be honest, I was really young. I think I was five or six when I saw the competition on TV and said, I want to try that. Well, I mean, you tried it and then stuck with it in many, many different directions. I mean, so how did you become... From six, what was the road to becoming an Olympic synchronized swimmer? Yeah, so I joined a club and started training a few times a week first. And then it quickly became five days a week and then six days a week and then more hours. I progressed pretty quickly. I competed at the national level when I was 11 and 12. So in the youth national levels. And then I progressed from there. I made the na- the, my first national team when I was 12 with the youth 12 and under and then 13 to 15 and then the juniors. So I made progression through that. I changed school to be able to be in a sports school that would allow me to have more hours for the training. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I moved to the National Training Center in Paris, which was sort of a mandatory stop if you want to become an elite athlete in synchronized swimming or an Olympian. So I knew that at some point I would have to leave home 
to be able to join the training center and train for the highest level. So the senior national team and the Olympics and all the international competitions. So that's sort of what happened. Progression of hours and training, progression of the level of competition that I was in, participation in different national teams and national training camps, and eventually an invitation to the national training center. And from there, you're sort of in that squad that is training for all of the biggest competition. And so I made my first Olympic team in 2000 and participated in the Olympic Games in Sydney. Wow. So let's back up. The system is different in France than here. I mean, the school system in general is different. There's a time, right? You can correct me on the details that any student, whether you're an elite athlete or not, needs to make a decision if they're going to go on with their academic study or learn a vocation of some sort. That's correct, right? It's slightly different in the sense that, for example, one of the requirements at the National Training Center is that you pursue your academics. So if you want to receive a... It's not a scholarship for university. It's a scholarship from the government to continue in your sport. If you want to receive your scholarship, you have two conditions to fulfill. One of them is continuing your academics. And that is provided at the National Training Center. You have different options there. And the second one is to complete all the requirements for anti-doping. If you complete those two conditions, then you continue to receive a scholarship from the government to help you cover the cost of your training. It's not something that will give you a salary, but certainly it's similar to the university where the scholarship covers your lodging, your training, your academics, basically. Again, very different from the U.S. We don't have that kind of government support. It's it's private, as you know, so very interesting to learn about that. And how old were you when you moved away from your family to the training center? So I was 15 years old. So that was the first year I moved. I remained at the training center until I was 23. Eventually, I lived off campus. And at 15 years old, you live in a separate area of the training center that's for minors and those that are still attending high school. So it's slightly different. But that would be similar to moving to going to college. I was about six hours drive from home and a two-hour train ride. Do you remember what that was like to leave your family at that age? Yes. Oh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. What was that like for you? I have a very clear memory of it because, first of all, it happened really quickly. You receive an invitation from the national governing body of your sport. And I remember receiving the invitation, I think it was in July, and they were saying basically training stops next month. So make your way to Paris. I think it came as a shock a little bit for my parents. I never really questioned it. So the letter came in and I was like, fantastic. I got in. This is the next step. Let's go. Yeah. And in my head, it was like, okay, I was gone. Like I never really thought there was a discussion around it because this was the the gateway to the next level. I'm sure my parents had lots of conversation about it, but I was like, I'm going, whatever you want, you guys, I'm going there. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate from the 15-year-old side as well as the parent side. Like I have a 15-year-old right now who plays high-level softball and I could not imagine her leaving our home right now. I just couldn't. If there was some way I was preparing for it alongside her, 
Maybe there are conversations I would have, but at that developmental age at 15, you are coming into a different relationship with your parents. You're more independent. You're more looking to, in this case, your coaches and your teammates and your friends, your peer group is more influential right now than the parents, which is a tough but very common and normal process to happen. Tough for the parent, not for the kid as much. (laughs) Tough for the parent to let go. I think also, you know, you're talking about independence and independence maybe is more important in friends for kids, especially if you're an athlete. So the system is set up in a way where children early on will have to, for example, join a school that has different hours to accommodate your training hours. So I did that very early on. I moved in middle school, I moved to a school that would allow me to finish school at three o'clock instead of six to be able to do my training after school. But that also required me to take many different buses and train and subways to go to the school. So early on, I was used to getting myself around to go to practice. And then a lot of athletes end up leaving their home early on to join perhaps a bigger club. And typically they would be like leaving either at a boarding school or with a host family. And so I think I was exposed to that. We had another athlete who stayed at my home who was from another town. So I think the fact of leaving your house was more common perhaps than what we see here and, and more definitely more talked about. Like I saw her, you know, we would take her to the train on Friday night and pick her up on Sunday. And so I knew what it was like to leave somewhere else. Wow. Again, that's so cool to learn about and know that the systems are very different and that the independence has happened so early. Just thinking it from like a psychological point of view. I mean, you only know what you know. You only had the experience that you had and you are who you are. So it's a cultural difference. And it's just really fascinating. It's really fascinating to hear. You have an interesting story in competing in Olympic Games, retiring, competing again. Isn't it true that you were in four Olympic Games in four different countries? Like, how does that work? (laughs) So yes, it's true. Okay. (laughs) So the first game I competed with the French national team in Sydney as an athlete. And how old were you then? How old were you then? I was 20 years old. Okay. And then I was on my way to prepare for the next Olympics, Athens in 2004. I actually retired the year before, attended business school, took a job right out of school to work in Australia with the company that I was already working for. So I moved to Australia with my work, ended up resuming my sports career in Australia and competing for Australia in the 2008 Games. So I had a change of sport nationality in between the two. And then we moved to London with my husband in 2010 for his work. And I ended up joining the GB team as a coach and a consultant. So I coached their team for the 2012 Olympics. And then we moved to the US. My husband is from California. So we moved back to the US right after the Olympic Games in 2012. I shortly after that joined USS Synchronized Swimming. 
and uh, stayed with the organization for five years. And I attended the Rio Olympics as a team leader for the synchronized swimming team. So that was with the U.S. So that's how it happened. I finished my circle of Olympics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Wow. I mean, there's so much there to unpack and like sit with together. What led you, you're 23, 24, when you retired the first time? Still, I mean, still assuming you're physically able, you're mentally able to still compete. What led you to retire at that time? Yes. So I had continued my academics alongside my sports career. I did an exam to get into one of the top business school in France in 2002, and I got in. And so after this, I had no thoughts of retirement. But what was a meeting with my coaches and my federation that I thought was a preseason kind of meeting turned out to be them asking me to choose between preparing for the Olympics or attending business school. So I ended up deciding to go to business school. First of all, I was in shock of being asked to choose. I hadn't expected that. Miriam, because you thought they'd support that you could do both because that's what your career has been up until then, right? Any of your ventures outside of synchronized swimming would be supported. Is that the shock that you're speaking of? Yes. But also my school was very flexible with athletes. They had been another Olympic track runner that was attending the school prior to me who had been spreading the school over many, many years. They had said that they would be flexible with the number of courses that I needed to take per year and the credit. So I thought that I would have that flexibility from the school. At the time, the coaches thought, even if there was the flexibility for the school, that it would be distracting in preparation for the games. We were also trying to medal. So we had a big goal. And so they asked me to choose. I mean, for whatever reason, I don't really know all of the detail, obviously. I would know only what was presented to me. And I think, one, it was a shock. Two, I was also very excited that I had got into this really top-level school. And I did not want to give that up. I felt I had been to the Olympics already. And I thought, well, I'm going to, if you guys don't want me, I'm going to take a shot at the business school because that's the other goal I've been working towards. So I ended up going to school. It was pretty bittersweet, to be honest. I wanted to try to do both. I hadn't thought about retirement. Another thing from a psychology perspective, after the 2000 games, I never really readjusted my goals. So from early on as a kid, my goal was always to participate in the Olympics. I reached that in 2000. And then I never had to sit down with myself or with a mental coach and going, okay, I've done this. What's my next goal? So I was sort of like in this wheel of, you know, I kept going, but there was no clear road on the sports side where I had a clear road on the school side. And I think that's also what tilted the balance for the scale for me, you know? because that goal was clearer. Perhaps if I had been clearer on both sides, I would have fought more for the flexibility of doing both, you know? Mm. I don't know. Mm. That's why I tried to like reflect and look back at it. But it was a great choice for me. I really dived into the school, loved every single minute of it. I hadn't studied as hard before and also found a company that was 
sponsoring me during the school. So I was able to work for that company while attending school. I took a year overseas during the school as part of the school program and lived in Asia, in Thailand for a year as part of that business school. And then the company that I was working with hired me at the end of the school and I moved with them with a job opportunity in Australia. So, you know, it worked out pretty good. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know what our journey is to be and we flow with it and make it what it is. I think I'm a little bit biased, but I think your whole journey as a human and as a business person, as an entrepreneur, as a Olympic athlete is pretty impressive. And just the way that it's twisted and turned and that you've adapted is really important for your audience, my audience, anyone listening to hear. We've had some communication around athlete identity and athletes transitioning from retirement, out of retirement, back in into the sport, potentially like in your situation. And that a lot of times athletes don't, first of all, I think feel they can take the space or know how to take the space to think about their lives alongside their identity as an athlete and definitely after the sport. Like, what do you think led to you to like having the the wherewithal to know that you could develop different aspects of yourself, not just the athlete, not just the student, but someone who wants to be in business, someone who's chosen a career, someone who wants to pursue it and make, I would think at that young age, still a very tough decision about it. And maybe not having the counseling and mentoring that you would have wanted, but it is what it is. But like, where did that come from to feel like you had the freedom and the space to do that? Because I know a lot of athletes I know in this country don't feel like they can. Yeah. I think I was always very focused on my academics. That's the first one. For two reasons. One, synchronized swimming is a niche sport. You're not going to make a career out of it. There's no professional outlet. So I knew that at some point I had to find something else. So it's not giving up your education to be full-time in your sport was never an option. I think the second one is that my parents were always very supportive of my education and putting focus into it. I also had a lot of facilities at school, like I did well. And so, you know, naturally they pushed me towards their direction because I was doing well. So I think there was a lot of support from both my dad and my mom to develop my academic potential and not give it up. And I think that was always very clear. There were quite a few of my cousins studied at a pretty high level and went on to have some pretty exciting jobs. And so I think those were about maybe seven to 10 years older than me. So I had seen what you could achieve when you had a higher education. You know, one of my cousins is a nuclear physicist. Uh, another one is in business, lots of engineers, and very different routes as well. So it was good for me as an example to see what they were doing and not just necessarily have example of people in sport. So I paid attention to that. And I was always curious about other things. So I think that's more a personality trait. I like to learn, you know, other things and see what others are doing. And so I think I was always quite open-minded and aware of what was happening around. Mm -hmm. 
and very realistic about how far you could go in your niche sport. Oh, yeah. I think that's really, really important. This was never going to pay the bill. Yeah. <laughs> but gives you opportunities. Gives you opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, and just in all those different ways that helped develop you to be the woman that you are. And at every stage of my life, very important what you're saying, because I pursued two things and sports kept the doors open and brought more opportunities, even in the business side. So you still have to work hard. You still have to have a degree. You still have to connect with people and be curious and learn about things. But sport always gave me that uniqueness, that point of differentiation that would open even more doors and bring me even more opportunities that I would have not had before. The job I got when I was in business school was with a company that offered specific retirement program for athletes. That's how I entered that company. And then I ended up working in sponsorship for them because it still connected with my background and it opened up opportunities in Australia. And then they supported me when I competed in the Beijing Olympics. So at every step of the way, things eventually click. As long as you're open to kind of seeing them and acknowledging them and then taking the risk to do it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think that's very important. Having the mindset where you're open to seeing it as an opportunity and then taking action on behalf. I mean, I think what you're talking about is really important too for other athletes, young athletes, Olympic hopefuls who might be listening that even if your sport isn't one that can go professional at one point, it can lead you to being professional, if that makes sense, right? It can lead you to be professional in business, in a career of your choice somewhere else. I feel like my experience with playing as well is that the relationships that you build, relationships, connections, the network that lasts way beyond people are still competing at the highest level that you achieve. So being able to be acknowledged there, right? And have those networks and like, okay, I'm going to bring Miriam here and bring Miriam there. Or like, I can bring Eric here, Eric there, like alongside me as well is because playing a sport, even if it's an individual sport, you're still part of a team and that you want to have a team around you. Yeah. It's natural. Yeah. It's common. Yeah. Right. And that you want to have those team members to have be of the same like mind and like heart and like spirit as you are so that you can uplift each other, just like in a game, just like in a competition. I think trusting yourself as well when it comes to this opportunity and the teams, you have to, at least for me, that played a really important role and it still does today in the decision that I make. At a point in time in your life, you have to make decisions. You evaluate all the options that you have that are presented at you and you make the decision that's right for yourself at that point in time. And you have to trust that's right. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. You go and do something different, but you have to accept that decision and move forward rather than trying to like think about it over and over and then you don't do anything. And I think for me, that was always important. When the job opportunity came for Australia, I thought, okay, I don't know anybody there. This is the other side of the world. My English suck. Like, this is going to be hard. But I've got to try. And so once I had made that decision, 
And worst case scenario, and that's what I always go back to, what is the worst case scenario? I don't like it, then I'll come back or I'll do something else. But you've got to try it. And so once the decision is made, moving forward and embracing it and see what happens. Absolutely. And I feel like this is very similar. You know, I made my decision very similarly in sport than I do in business, than I do in life as well. And so again, super valuable. It sounds like there was an early and strong belief in yourself, trust in yourself. How did that develop? How did you get to that place? Because not everybody can get there and, or know how to get there for them uniquely. What is it that brought you to that place to really trust yourself to try something that could, to the next person, be too risky? That's a really good question. I, and I wonder if it goes back to very early on. My mom was always very trustful of what I could do. You know, an example, when I had to change school in middle school to be able to attend my practices in the afternoon, she trusted me to take the bus, the subway and the bus and travel for an hour and a half to get to practice every day by myself at age 11. One, because there were no other choices. But I think I felt empowered that she trusted me to do that. And of course, there were some challenges at times, but it worked and I made it work and I was responsible. I think you're trusted early on, then you feel that you can do it. And even if they ever had doubts, I think they never showed it to me, including when I moved to Paris in a different city at the training center. I remember the training center was. Very old-fashioned, really needed renovation. The room looked terrible. (laughs) And when they left me there, my mom was like, are you sure you're going to stay here? I mean, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, this is just for sleeping. All that matters is my training. I think that's the only moment that I ever felt a little bit of doubt from them. But they let me take the train back and forth between my hometown and Paris on my own. And my dad was always strong at saying, don't let anybody tell you what you can do. You need to decide for yourself what you can do. It doesn't matter if you're a girl. You can do the same thing as the boys. I grew up in a family where most of my cousins are boys. There was no, I didn't really have a girl cousin of my age. So early on when we went skiing, hiking and playing sport, it was always whatever they can do, you can do. Don't let them tell you you cannot do it. So I grew up with that mentality, you know, of pushing it and thinking that I can do it. And there was a little bit even of the challenge. Like if someone is going to tell me I can't do it, I have to prove them wrong. I have to like try to like show them I actually can do it. Mm -hmm. That's the competitor in you for sure. For sure. But I think what you're saying is that we learn how to trust and believe in ourselves when others close to us, like our parents, our guardians, our early coaches, trust and believe in us. So then we can internalize that and feel like anything's possible. And if it doesn't go right or awry or something, there's your support system there to help you navigate that if that is to happen. I used to watch super early on when I started the sport, we would train in a gigantic pool and you know, the competitive team would train one end and I would be on the other hand. And 
super early on, I used to like try to copy what they were doing. And then I would like grab the coach at the end of practice and say, okay, I know we've done all of this, but I want to show you what I can do that's the same as them. And I think just like, just keeping that curiosity and that desire to try and see what happens. And even today, like I try to like find challenges like that in sport and in life to just continue to have that fire, you know? Yes. Yes. That curiosity, the fire, the determination that like whatever is out there, let's take a deeper look and see if it's for us and go for it. Like you said, what do you got to lose? It's the worst that can happen is where you are right now before you even tried it. That's not a bad place. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that the belief and the trust that you have translates into how you speak to yourself. The self-talk is very positive. It's encouraging. It's steady, it's strong, it's unwavering. And I think that is really, really great. I work with a lot of athletes who have challenges in that area of like not having enough belief or being too perfectionistic or not being able to let go of mistakes perceived or real. And like then that keeps them back from like the next opportunity. When you get stuck there, you get blinded and aren't able to see the next opportunity because you're over here still trying to figure that out. If we can just leave that be and understand its purpose and move forward, that would be really great. Lisa, that's so important. I totally agree with you on the self-talk. And I would go even a step further for me. The visualization of what I want or my vision is very clear. And I think it started really early on. My mom was really a big believer on visualization of your routines as an athlete. In synchronized swimming, obviously, it makes sense because you, you're trying to visualize your perfect routine and then feel it yourself. But that also included, okay, how does like a perfect training day looks like? How does a perfect pre-comp day looks like? Can you see it clearly? How do you feel? So we did a lot of exercise on that early on, and I think I kept that pretty clearly. And now even in business, I'm like, okay, what do I want? What does that look like? Like I try to really see it, you know, more than just like talk to myself. Yes, both and for sure. That's I a mean, powerful tool, yeah. Totally. That's so beneficial. I mean, not just in sport, but in life, in business. Where did your mom learn to like see the value in that? Had she, where did she learn that? I don't know. It's a good point. Huh. I mean, it's great. She's generally pretty nervous. So I wonder if like it's her was her way to like, she wanted to be prepared always. We had to be prepared. And so very early on, you know, I had to like pack my stuff the day before, make sure everything was in it, have a packing list, have a plan. We sat down every year and she was like, okay, what are your goals for this year? Let's write it down. You know, what are your sports goals? What do you want to do with school? That's awesome. So we had a lot of, just planning down. I don't know that she did it for herself, but she actually made sure it was done for me. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I mean, that's a usual scenario for a parent, for sure. But, and I don't think you need to be, well, maybe. I think being a parent, there's a natural level of anxiety that's always there. Whether it's manifest in nervousness or like wanting to be planful so that she can feel good about how she cares for you. My daughter's the same way. She lays out her <laughs> her uniform or her training uniform or game, whatever it is, the night before. We have our packing list. She's meditating. She's thinking it through. What are her goals for that particular game? Even if it's in a series of tournament, then do we reassess? And then is the next game different set of goals? 
But that's because I learned that in my career. That's not because I, I had someone telling me that then I can then just tell my daughter. So I'm always curious as to where that comes from because everybody has a different path to get to that knowledge base or that understanding of themselves and they self-awareness, then they can pass it on to either their their players as a coach or their kids or as a parent or whatever. And I think it's always fascinating for me the way I think like where that comes from. But she had five siblings. Her dad died very early on and her mom wasn't very present. So she was the one who kind of was the head of the family and taking care of a lot of people. Was she the oldest? She was the oldest. And I think early on that required a lot of organization. For sure. So again, like going back even further in her life about where those skills were developed for her, in this case, for survival. Yeah. To keep the family together in adversity, right? To figure out what works for you to make your life feel satisfying, accomplished, and productive and survival. So... That's a great, a great story. I think that happens a lot for the older kid. If there's some kind of turmoil or grief or tragedy that happens, they step up into that hierarchy of the parent. Unfortunately, I think some childhood is lost, but I think that there's a way that they have to step up to like keep the family together and healthy. And that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Mom, she sounds awesome. <laughs> Tell me about Athlete Soul and what you're doing with that work. Sure. So Athlete Soul is a nonprofit organization which basically supports athletes in their retirement. So the mission of the organization is to help athletes when they're transitioning away from sport, but also to raise awareness on the challenges of athletic retirement and really encourage athletes to develop beyond sport before they retire so they're better prepared. So the things that we do are around education, awareness, individual and group coaching for athletes in the process of retirement. And then there's a lot of networking and community building between former athletes and athletes. Lots of different tools and and services that we have available to help athletes from all sports, from any level, whether it's high school, college, pros, and help them thrive in their next life and accelerate that transition or make it easier. So that's what we do. Uh, All the services that we offer to athletes are are free. We're really attached to the nonprofit part of of our organization and its independence from any sporting organization. We We were created by former athletes. We are run by volunteer former athletes and, uh, you know, trying to offer a solution for athletes to continue to do well. That's awesome. I love that it's nonprofit. I love that any athlete at any level can access it. And there's a mentorship component, super important. Again, that there's a belief in you, a trust in you that you can get through this part of your life too. And someone who's been through it can help you along. I think that's really powerful. What do you find is are the biggest... I have two questions in mind. I'll do the first one. Challenge that athletes face maybe at the different levels when they leave their sport or retire. What are some of the challenges? Identity loss is probably one of the biggest ones. And it happens, I think, for most, if not all athletes, regardless of what they think, it's going to be hard. Even if you're prepared, that identity loss, which eventually turns into, okay, no, it's not lost. It's just different. And it's going to continue to go with me. But I think in the beginning is who am I is pretty hard. 
And I think the second one is just generally the loss of structure and daily rhythm that goes with retirement. So that's more immediate. And that's also what leads to all sorts of challenges around sleep, nutrition, how to exercise if you're not an athlete, your social connections. So I think these are the two biggest ones. They obviously are different depending on the type of retirement that you had, whether it was voluntary or not, whether you had an injury or not. Obviously, if you come out of sport because of a a major injury, that's going to be a big aspect of your retirement first is your rehab and getting better. And perhaps this will have an impact for the rest of your life. But yeah, those are the kind of the two or three elements that we see the most. No, I thank you for sharing that. I think I see that too in my work. Very similar. I mean, the athlete identity, which is grieving. It's grief. It's a loss. And then we can see it as like, okay, it's just different. But they have to be able to grieve it to some extent that it's it, the loss of it in that way is no longer. But your identity as an athlete can shift to other things. And like, we have to grieve that loss before we can open up the other ones fully. So I think that's super valuable. And yeah, very fascinating. Like, how do you exercise when you're not an athlete anymore competing? <laughs> how do you still stay healthy and move your body when you don't have to do it six hours a day, etc.? <laughs> yep. And we see a lot of athletes who go from, they'll do that yo-yo. So it's, okay, I'm going to stop completely. I'll do nothing because I want to be a couch potato for like yeah, yep. three months. Uh-huh. And then you'll see the one who's like, okay, I had a great workout. I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to exercise four hours a day, every day. So I'm still doing the same thing. Or then I hate it. So then I go do nothing. And it goes back and forth because if you do nothing, you're not going to feel great. So I think for a few years after retirement, there's definitely an adjustment to be made. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to find themselves again, right? And have a new relationship with their bodies and like how it feels how it feels to fuel this body now, how it feels to move this body and to normalize that, to normalize that process that you might go through a yo-yo and like you've been training all along and you want to be a couch potato, but then that doesn't feel right. So like just trusting, trusting again and believing that you'll find what's right for you at that time. Absolutely. Can you tell us a story you're proud of in one of the athletes that's come to you in Athlete Soul, like the place they began into your contact with you and then kind of like what it's become for them over the months or years, like a story you're proud of? So the one that are in transition away from sport, what we've seen the most is just them trusting the decision that they had maybe already made, but were not they were not confident to take the step towards that. So they would have an idea for a job, but they were in another job and they were not getting serious about what they really wanted to do. And I think just working with a coach, it just makes you move forward and helps you go for it, keeps you accountable and you'll just, you'll be able to do that. So I think that's one piece. We've had a lot of current athletes interning with Athletes All And now we're starting a program for current athletes on how they can start developing beyond sport and start preparing. And we've had some great stories 
just their confidence level is so much higher because they feel now that they can express themselves outside of the confines of their sport, even if it's helping us like work on so on the social media of the organization or lead a summit or they feel like, okay, I can do this. If I can do this, I can do any other tasks outside of my sport. So I think for them, it really, the changes in the confidence level, I feel, and understanding that their self-worth is not them as an athlete and they have a lot more to offer. That's what we've, we've observed too. That's amazing. I mean, that changes the whole trajectory of someone's life when you're able to access that type of self-awareness and knowledge, right? Yeah. So for our last question, I'm going to integrate a little bit of what we've talked about in a practical way and have you share your thoughts on this question. So your parents have had a lot of influence on you. If you were to like visualize a letter that you would write to them expressing your gratitude for all that they've done and have done and are doing for you from age five all the way to now. In visualizing that letter, what would the words say? I think it's super simple. And it's really about thanking them for making me believe that I have the potential always to do what I want to do. And it's literally as simple as that. And it's probably wouldn't even be a letter. It would probably just be a big hug Mm -hmm. and telling them that. It probably would be like taking them on a trip somewhere or like sending it back to them is like, you can do whatever you want to, you know? Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and making it personal as far as, no, not a letter. I would give a hug. (laughs) I love it. And being able to give back to them what they've given to you and you're giving back to the athlete community as well, which is amazing with Athlete Soul. I look forward to more conversations with you over time and following your work and supporting in any way I can. It's just been my pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today, Miriam. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. And great question. I think we really have gotten in the deep of some really interesting things. I love what you're doing and your work with athletes. It's so important. So thank you for having me too. Thank you. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sportsypreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide.